Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at We're going to be going over those things, so I'm really excited to be able to look through those things and how Scripture impacts how we view those topics. Because for the majority of the past couple of decades, if I'm honest with you guys, uh, growing up in church, the overall church has failed to look at these topics from a biblical view. Now, if you've grown up in a church that did talk about these things, praise God. I mean, if, if your church that you grew up talked about pornography and abortion and racial reconciliation and gender identity and looked at those from the image of God, then praise Him. But if you're like me and you grew up in a church that was more consumed about getting people in the seats than actually looking at what Scripture mandates and how we look at these things, then the overall church has dropped the ball in addressing these topics. And so I'm excited to be a part of a church that we're going to be able to open up God's word and look at these things. And hopefully, Lord willing, every single new year, we'll be able to look at these topics and these issues from scripture. R.C. Sproul actually said that the organized church, more than any other institution apart from the Supreme Court, has neglected its duty to inform the public conscience about abortion. And not just in abortion, when it comes to gender identity, racial reconciliation, the sanctity of life, the church as a whole has dropped the ball. And so I think it's important for us to take a look from Scripture of how we should be able to interact with the world when it comes to these topics. Because the Imago Dei is so important. It's going to lay the foundation of how we look at this world and how we interact with those in it. So if you guys will turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1 and 2, and then if you'll put your finger there, uh, we'll also jump down to verses 26 and 27 this morning. Um, and we're going to kind of just stay there this morning and let the weight of Scripture teach us what God has to say. So Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heaven, heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jumping down to verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the New Year's and a reminder of your word that says your mercies are new every morning. Lord, as we take a look at what your word has to say, show us more of you. Let us learn and grow our affections in you. Let us be able to dive dive deep into the well of your joy and your source of life. Lord, let us, as we read your word this morning, see the sense of who we are through the Imago Dei. Let that knowledge and love flow out of how we interact with this world around us. Lord, this morning, as I preach your words, Lord, help me get out of the way and, and, and let you get the praise and the glory. 
And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. My strength and my redeemer in whom I've put my trust. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning to kick off our series and kind of lay a groundwork and foundation of the Imago Day series that we're going to go through, we're actually going to look at who God is. And if you hear that title, you're like me, that is a weighty title. It is a deep, deep title. And there is a lot of information when it comes to who God is. There are books, countless books. I mean, when I was starting to study this series, I mean, there are so many books and books and, and, and other topics about preaching on who God is that I was really overwhelmed. But what I've come to see and what I want to give you guys uh, is three characteristics that will help us when it comes to the image of God and who we're made of or who, who we're made to be in the image of. And the first one is this, God is a creator. The second one is that God exists in community. And then finally, God is our only redeemer. God is the redeemer. And so my main point that flows from these characteristics is this. How you view God is going to be your foundation for all other human and worldly interactions. And I'll repeat that for anybody that's writing that down. How you view God is your foundation for all other human and worldly interactions. It's how you view self. It's, it's the lens on how you view others and how you treat them. And it's how we view God is going to determine how we look at the Imago Dei issues that we'll be discussing in the next couple of weeks. So if you'll go back with me to Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 1, we'll see God as the creator. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you may not recognize this right off the bat, but this creation account is unique and important to how we view who God is and who we're made in the image of. Tim Keller, in his book, Before the Beginning, says that there are Three profound implications on how we view our lives just from that verse. You'll see that before creation, there was God. Before creation, there was love. And then finally, before creation, there was darkness. Now, you may look back at this verse and say, okay, why is that sentence, in the beginning, there was God, so unique and important, especially to who we are and who we're made in the image of? It's unique and it's important because the majority of the world whether you've heard this or not, the majority of the world, other religions, atheism and mythology teach us something completely different. Listen to some of the mythological creation accounts. According to one myth, the human race arises from the blood of a slain God. In another mythology account, we are created from the remains of a dead sea monster. In these mythological accounts, humans are typically an accident or even an afterthought, the result of a bigger cosmic force that has nothing to do with us. No care, no love, just we're there. Atheism, specifically speaking from Richard Dawkins, and if you haven't heard from him or heard about him, is usually the biggest voice when it comes to the atheistic view, especially when it comes to God and creation. He says that the universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple. Just physics and chemistry, 
just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space. The fact that it did not, the fact that life evolved out of literally nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved literally out of nothing, is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt the words to do it justice. And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only did evolution happen, it eventually led to beings capable of comprehending the process by which they comprehend it. Again, we're made out of nothing, from nothing. So there's no value. We're just balls of mass, energy, that are here today and gone tomorrow. That's his view. Buddhism would tell, would tell us that there was never any creation account, but that we've always been and will always be as we continue to recreate ourselves. So whatever you do in this world, it's okay because the next world you'll have a different life and you'll be able to live differently. Maybe you'll live better, maybe you'll live worse, but you'll continue to recreate yourself. And in most other creation accounts, the universe comes from something, whether it's nothing or just is there. And usually multiple gods and our universe is the result of their cosmic battle. That's how the world teaches how we came about. No importance, no value, no measure of life. Yet in Genesis, everything starts with God. God creates all things in love and in joy and intimacy within the Trinity, and he sees everything is good. And the beauty of this creation, if, you're able, if we're able to look back at the original writing in Hebrews, we see Moses writing in a poetic form that celebrates the creation inside of the Trinity. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Magician's Nephew, gives us this picture of God's creation inside the Trinity. Aslan, if you've never read the series Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the allegorical Christ figure in this book. But Aslan, in the beginning of The Magician's Nephew, comes forth singing out of joy and out of love and out of intimacy. He sings creation into life. And C.S. Lewis gives this small picture of how the Trinity created the universe in love and in joy and in intimacy. But I want to stop right there because I want to ask the question, and I hope we are asking the question, why is this important to us? Why is it important that we know that God created all things out of love and joy and intimacy? Because if he did create all these things, if he did create us specifically in the image of God, then we have intrinsic value and worth. Every single human being has a measure of life. We're not just some cosmic balls or mutated cells that never end or just recreates ourselves in a new life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that is true, then all of life's questions around origin, all of life's questions around purpose and design are rooted in that sentence, in the beginning, God created. The questions of who I am, why I'm here, and how things work find their answer in that sentence. But again, this isn't what the world teaches. This isn't what is being pushed at universities. This isn't what's being pushed on the news. Because what the world tends to teach is specifically karma or relativity or relativity. Okay, I'm going to go with relativity. <laughs> or an atheistic view of creation. But most of the leaders who stand up for these things have problems here 
with what we believe. And the funny thing is, most of them have had these things pointed out to them by some of the greatest Christian debaters, and they can't get past what the creation account gives. Jean-Paul Sartre, when writing about the problem with creation, says this, once you dispense with God, he goes on to say, the good news is you can do what you want, guilt-free, no dread of retribution. And if you get away with it here on earth, you get away with it forever. But the bad news is when you dispense with God, you lose all intellectual basis for declaring anything to be inherently right or wrong. You see, in order to say something is right or wrong, you have to have a standard by which you're comparing it to. To say something is against the specific design in which it's created for, you have to know why it was designed. And if the universe is simply random colliding materials or mutated cells, there can't be any design or purpose, and thus no right or wrong. Now, it may be argued that practically, there are certain things in this world that are useful to us as human beings. And they're going to be based on different vantage points. But saying that something is useful is different than saying something is wrong or inherently evil. I'm going to give you this example. Your view of genocide may be the same as mine. We would consider it wrong and evil. But why is that? Just because we think that it's evil, others see it as useful to the human race. The Nazis had a different opinion than us. And you might argue that their calculation was wrong in thinking that genocide was okay. But that's different than saying the strong targeting the weak is inherently evil. And then the, and the question becomes, as we go through this thought process, is what's so special about the human race anyways? Why should it survive? Why not let the survival of the fittest actually do its work? Well, some people might actually take that a little bit further and say, you know what, I'm not going to be for, pro or, for or be pro-genocide or, or killing of mass murdering people that can't uh, afford or can't live well and aren't considered strong in this world. But I am going to say that what the majority of people think, that should be law. We've heard a lot of it this election, haven't we? The, the popular vote should be what's law. But really, when we start to go down that path, we can start to look at history and ask the question, where does that leave the slave living in the American South in the 1840s? When the majority of people assume that their oppression is what most, was most useful for society. Or the Jew in the 1930s. If the Nazis had won and convinced everyone that there was a superiority in the Aryan race, would that have made Jewish oppression right? If we are just a bunch of compounded matter that have no value and no worth, then guys, survival of the fittest should be the way we live. We shouldn't be worrying about people coming over from Syria. We should just let them live as they are, and the strong should just ex take out the weak. And that's how we should operate. But that's not what God teaches from his creation account. He teaches us that every single human being has value and worth and intrinsic dignity that places humankind above anything else in creation. And it's because of this value and intrinsic dignity 
that how we view and interact people in the world must be shaped by our theology flowing from our understanding of the Imago Dei. Now let me give you this example. <clears throat> um, most of you guys know that I have a dog named Aslan. He's, he's honest. If you guys haven't met him, I would say come over to my house and he'll give you a bunch of hugs and kisses and probably knock you down because he's a pretty big dog and he's very, very excited all the time. And I have a friend in South Florida. His son has Asperger's. And he may never experience life to the fullest. But when we put those two in comparison, you know who has more value? Every single time, it's my friend's son. Every single time. Because he is made in the image of God. And just because he may not be able to experience everything that I experience in this world, because he's made just like me in the image of God, he has value and he has worth. Aslan is just a created being, dog. He's, he's great, I love him, but he does not have the weight of humankind. And let me put it maybe a little bit less heavier. Um, say, and I hope to this happens, maybe in 2017, maybe not. Um, I hope I get married. I hope I have children. That would be great. And I hope Aslan's around there to run around with my kids. But say in the next couple of years that happens and I start running into some financial hard times. And I have to look and make decisions about what I need to keep and what I need to get rid of. And Aslan's up on the chopping block. He's gone. I mean, that's, it would be hard, but that's no brainer. Because everybody in my family, especially my wife and my kids, have intrinsic value and purpose. And that's how we have to view humankind inside of our view of the Imago Dei. Because if we start to look at things just through mathematics or emotions, the real, and, and I'm going to tell you this right now, all husbands just need to look right at me. Mathematically, it would be better to get rid of my wife, wouldn't it? She's always going to cost me more money than that dog. I mean, every single time. He only, he only costs 20 bucks to feed a month. I can't even tell you how much it might cost to date a wife or date a girl and then get married to her in the wedding. And then 30 years down the road, she's always going to cost me more money. Right? Don't say right, guys. Don't. Mathematically, though, we don't, we don't look at our relationships through mathematics or just emotions. Because if we did, then it would be easy to have who's on the chopping block and who's going to stay. But we look at our relationships through the view of the Imago Dei and the purpose and the value and the dignity that we have with each other. And if we see that God has created all things and we believe that he is God over all, then he has designed things in this world to work in such a way for his glory and our joy. God isn't some type of deist who sits back and lets his creation just evolve and isn't intrinsically involved in it. And that should give us hope that the things that we go through, the things that you went through in 2016 or, or before that really, really sucked, God wasn't just unaware of it. Or... We can't and we shouldn't see God as one who just sits in heaven waiting to discipline us. 
someone who sits there with lightning bolts and the moment that we do something wrong or that's against his word, he's going to discipline us out of, out, of rang- out of wrath and anger. But he's one who loves us and he's making us into the image of his son. And because God has created us for purpose, because he has created us out of love and joy, and he's designed all things to work for our joy, our purpose in life is to bring him glory. That's our purpose, to bring him glory. And as Dwayne said, the more and more we seek to bring him glory, the more and more joy flows into our lives. And the beauty of that knowledge that we're created for God's glory is this. It makes us not the point. We're not the point. In our lives, when we interact with others, we're not the point. And that should take some weight off of every one of our shoulders because when we're not the point, then everything in our lives can be viewed from a different lens. When somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're not the point, you can have a little bit more empathy towards them maybe think, hey, they might be rushing to an emergency. I don't know, but I'm not the point. Or when you get home from work and you're tired and all you want to do is have a home-cooked meal and go to sleep and yet you walk into chaos, when you're not the point, you view that situation a lot differently than getting frustrated and angry at the, at the house you're walking into. And this beauty of the creation order shows us that. It shows us that we're not the point. And it shows us that Christ is the point. The Bible itself is a book specifically about Jesus. And every single story whispers his name. See, the point of the Bible is not to tell you how to fix your life up or how to get healthy. Obviously, I'm reading the Bible and I'm not healthy. (laughs) The point of the Bible is to show you how to fix your eyes on Christ. And when that happens, then his power will begin to change and fix your life. That's why when Jesus tells us how to pray, and we're following his example of how to pray, he starts off first with, hallowed be your name. He doesn't talk about his circumstances. He doesn't talk about anybody else. He says, Lord, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus rightly bestows the honor that God deserves, giving us this example in his prayer. And when we don't, when we as creation start to look and wander at the world, God gets jealous because he wants us to have fullness of life and joy in him. And I want to talk about a little, just really quickly, when I say God gets jealous, he gets jealous in a righteous manner. Because there are two ways that we can look at jealousy, unhealthy and healthy. I'll give you this example. Say a couple is just about to get married and they're sitting down for premarital counseling and that pastor says, okay, how are you going to respond when your wife wants to go out with her women friends and you're at home? Or how about wife, how are you going to respond when your husband just wants to go hang out and watch a football game with the boys? Is your response going to be, no, you can't do that because you're mine. Nobody else gets your time, and you start to get angry. And you say things like, you need to be home every single night. You need to be serving me. That's an unhealthy jealousy. 
unhealthy jealousy of the husband and wife's time and how that's spent. But a very healthy jealousy looks like this, say in that same relationship, now the husband and wife are married and the husband starts spending time with another woman, sharing intimate thoughts and emotions and things about his life and these conversations about his heart. Or the wife starts to hang out with a man and shares her heart in inappropriate ways and not with her husband. Those spouses have every right to be angry and frustrated and upset because they're married to each other. They've made a covenant with each other. And God, in the same way, gets jealous when we start to hang out inappropriately with the world because he's designed us to give him all the glory and to find our deepest and most profound satisfaction in him. So just like a husband is right to be jealous if his wife is sharing time with another man or a wife to be jealous because her husband is sharing life and emotions and the intimacy of her life with, or I'm sorry, a husband, yeah, a husband is sharing life with another woman. They both have that right as a healthy jealousy. And he's, again, God is jealous because he wants us to have the fullness of joy and life in this world, giving him all praise and all glory. But we as believers, we constantly wander back. We constantly think that the world is going to provide that satisfaction and that joy. That's why the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, says we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Because that tends to be our nature as we tend to walk back and think that this world, what we think in this world is actually going to be the greatest joy that we can find. Going back to my dog, when we, uh, we, we used to live in Florida, rain all the time it would come. Um, and there would be puddles in the backyard and frogs would go jumping in that puddle. So when I had to let Aslan out to go to the bathroom, he would go after those frogs. And every single time I had to stop him. I had to yell at him. I had to break his attention off these frogs because what he was unaware of that I knew was that frogs, especially in Florida, have a chemical on their skin that if a creature such as a dog or another animal tries to eat them, they can push this um, serum or whatever out and it can truly affect or even kill an animal so that they don't get killed. It's a defense mechanism that the frog has. My dog doesn't know that. But I know that, and what I want to teach him and what I want him to have is life and joy, even though he thinks that what he's doing is going to give him the most pleasure and the most life and joy in the actions that he has. And in the same way, when God disciplines us in his jealousy, his healthy jealousy, he's trying to show us what you think is going to be right and bring you the most joy is not it. When you wander and have inappropriate relations with the world, C.S. Lewis says this and as an even deeper perspective. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You see, the joy that we have in creation that God has created us in his image and that he is the creator of all things, is that being made in his image, we have intrinsic value and worth 
And God has designed us in such a way that when we press into that, when we understand that knowledge, we find full satisfaction in him. And God doesn't want that to stop until we are fully resting in him. That's why God is the creator is so important. That's why that first sentence in Genesis 1-1 is so important to our lives in viewing how we see the world through the lens of the Imago Dei. My second point, and trust me, it's not as long as the first one, is that God exists in community. This doctrine has long been named the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three existing figures, or spirits, but it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All existing in one, but three entities. It's a, it's a crazy to think about, I understand. But if we go back, we'll see that this trinity is thoroughly involved in the creation of this world. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face. So the first thing I want to point out here, again, I know that we don't have Hebrew Scripture in front of us, but the word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God is Elohim. And in the Hebrew, it's not a singular, it's not a singular dis description of God. It's a plural description. So there's more than one in this creation account starting off. And then secondly, we not only see God the Father in a plural creating the world, but we also see the Spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit, hovering over the water. So two people of the Trinity right there we see in the beginning. And then John 1 would tell us that Christ was also thoroughly involved in creation. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was, the, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Paul goes on to write in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, that for in him all things were created. He's talking about Christ things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and all things, and in him all things hold together. And then we see this. We see this trinity in creation, but then not only just the creation of the universe, we see the trinity in love and joy creating mankind. Going back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, God said, let us make man in our image and, in, and after our likeness. And jumping down, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So from the beginning, we see the Trinity involved in community creating, in love and in joy and in intimacy, creating not only the universe, but all mankind. Tim Keller in his book, um, The Reasons for God, calls this trinity, this view of the trinity, a divine dance. It's a community where God the Father delights and glorifies in the Son, and where the Son delights and glorifies in the Holy Spirit, and where the Holy Spirit delights and glorifies the Father. And it's a beautiful dance of love around each other. And he goes on to say what it does mean then in this view of the trinity is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
glorify one another. And if we think about this graphically, if we think about this, how the world plays itself out, we could say that the idea of self-centeredness is a very static and stationary view. In self-centeredness, we demand that others orbit around us. We will do things and give affection to others only if it's going to help us meet our personal goals and needs. The inner life of the triune God, however, is utterly different. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on their interests and their desires. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three people, each of whom move around the other two. And so it is in the Trinity. As the Bible shows us how God glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father, each of the divine persons center around each other. None demands that the other revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration on to them. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. And the early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this. I'm going to screw this up, but I'm going to go with it. It's perichoresis. And you'll notice that the root of that word is choreography. It means literally to dance or to flow around. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do this as they glorify each other. And we see this at the center of the universe, at the beginning of creation, a self-giving love inside the Trinity. Now that's a lot to take in. And I'm, I'm not even going to lie to you, that's just a very like surface level entry, entry into the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is so profound, but it's so important to us as believers because it shows us that as we're created by the Trinity, we're also created in the image of that love and community. And it shows us that we belong in community with one another. We're created for community with one another. The ultimate reality is this, that we are made, for, we are made to be community, a community of people who know and love one another. And to be honest with you guys, that's why we harp on missional groups so often. It isn't just a time where we want to meet and hang out and talk about what we preached on or eat good food and, and play games and stuff. But that's all fun. It, it honestly is. I love doing that. But there's a biblical reason why we have missional groups. There's a biblical reason why we have Sunday morning gatherings and discipleship groups throughout the week because we want you guys as well as us to be able to tap into what you've been designed for, and that is community. It's not just good to come to service and sit here and then leave without any type of interaction or community with one another. It's not good to just go to a missional group and just sit there and not be involved intimately with the people around you. It's not good for your soul. It's not what you were created for. J.D. Greer would actually go on to say that things in a secret garden always grow mutant. And what he's talking about is our lives and sin when we don't enter into community and be vulnerable with one another, one another and we allow sin to just fester and we don't listen to what Scripture has to say in Ephesians 5 of bringing light to the darkness. It starts to grow mutant. And to be honest with you guys, as a man, I've seen this more often than not, men, as we get older, tend to get more closed off 
I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my father's life. I've seen it in my grandfather's life. The more and more they get older, the less and less that they have community with other men. I mean, think about your lives. <coughs> it may not be the same, but the majority of the time, <coughs> the mother has the most friends, and the father's just back at home, chilling. So, I'm sorry. So what I want to challenge each and every one of us with, <coughs> not just men, men and women, is to press into community. Press into, even though it may seem tough <coughs> or hard, take up the challenge of committing to the church. It may be incredibly difficult, but you don't have to read too much of the New Testament to see that things are going to get messy. When you open up your lives with people, it's going to get messy. It's going to get grotesque. It's going to show things that you may feel uncomfortable with. But it's inevitably good for your soul. It's why you've been created. And looking outside yourself, serving someone beyond yourself, and putting aside personal comfort, and coming to community with one another is how and why we've been made. This is what the church looks like, and this is why the church exists. And that's why it's so important to see the characteristic of God, that he is existing in community and has been before anything else was created. And finally, the last point I have about the characteristics of God and the view of the Imago Dei is that God is the Redeemer. If you go back to Genesis 1, just the first verse you see, or actually the first two verses you see that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now when we think about form, uh, when we think about a formless void, we think about darkness and, and nothing created. Specifically when we think about creation account, and, and God is there and he's created something, but it's just dark and it's void. You can start to think about chaos. Think about this. If the light system in the cities were all shut down, <coughs> and I think about the movie The Purge, <laughs> and it's just darkness, and people can live how they want, and there's no order, it's chaos. There's no law. It's chaos. People can do whatever they want. But if we go back to John 1, 1, it says, Christ, in the beginning, was the Word. And he was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And with him nothing has been made. In him was life, and life was the light of all mankind. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know why that is important inside of the creation account? It's because before, before we had void, before we had a formless creation, and the word came in and created, and created order out of the chaos. He brought light into life, and the darkness can't overcome it. And that's so important for us to understand that the word of God, Christ himself, creates order out of chaos because he's still doing the same today. Let me read you a couple verses that Romans would show 
who we are before Christ saves us. Just to kind of give you a picture of our chaos before Christ creates order. Romans 3 says that there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Romans 5 goes on to tell us that before Christ comes, or before Christ came, we were enemies towards God. Romans 6 tells us that we are slaves to sin, and that slave, being a slave to sin, we have our minds that are set against God. Romans 8 would go on to keep saying that for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And for those who set their mind on the flesh, there's death. He goes on to say, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's word because it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Scripture compounds over and over and over again. Before Christ, we are in chaos. We are in sin. We are in darkness. And we need the light of the gospel to break through. But the beauty of the New Testament and actually the beauty of Scripture would show us that God, the greatest prepositional phrase in all of Scripture, but God, while we were sinners, before the foundation of the world, in his love, predestined us to adopt us as sons and daughters of his. God looked at our mess. He looked at our chaos. He looked at the darkness that we lived in well before we were even born. And he chose us. He came. He lived the life that we cannot live. He died the death we so rightly deserved. And he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death and creating order for us for eternity. He brought in order into our lives out of the chaos. And right now, he's creating that order as he makes us into the image of Christ. And that's why it's so important when we look at the creation, we look at who God is and how we view the Imago Dei to see these things. This series, as we're, I'm going to close out this morning, this, as we go through this series, I'm going to be honest with you, some of the topics, I mean, just looking at our list of what we're going to do and talk about, it's going to ruffle some feathers. It may not ruffle feathers here, but it may press into our thoughts and beliefs about certain topics and how we're supposed to view them in light of the Imago Dei. Some of you may know people that are struggling with the things that we're going to be going through on racial reconciliation, on the sanctity of life, on gender, gender identity. You may know people who's dealing with it. Or you may know people who have gone through it. But here's what I want to challenge us as a church, not just on a Sunday morning gathering, but as a church, as, as a church as a whole, when we go out into the world and share the light of the gospel, we need to be a fortress of safety and grace or we don't understand what Christ has done for us. Because as believers of God and believers in Christ, God has taken us out of our darkness and given us life and order and purpose and so we can look at all of these topics and know that they're Imago Dei issues. 
Abortion is an Imago Day issue. Pornography is an, is an Imago Day issue. Slavery, recon, racial reconciliation, gender identity, gender equality, all of this stuff is Imago Day issues. And that is why I started off with that first point of how we view God is going to, is going to create in us a way in which we interact with the world. That's the foundation of how we view ourselves in light of the Imago Day. And my prayer for this series, my prayer for 2017, and so on, as the district church tries to bring light and life to the city of Indianapolis, is that one day this city would be like Ephesus, where the gospel turns the city upside down for the grace and glory of God. That abortion would end, that sex trafficking would be shut down, that racial reconciliation would come that blacks, whites, Hispanics, Burmese, any race would come together because we understand that we have been called to a greater purpose of bringing God glory for his kingdom. And that men and women would stop treating sex and their bodies as an object to sell because they recognize that they have been made with intrinsic value and worth because we've been made in the image of God. And this is gonna start with us. This is gonna start with the church because for far too long, we've let other people speak out for us. Far too long, we've hoped that the government will create laws in which people will change. But the church needs to be the one that steps up because God has called us to be ambassadors of the gospel. God has called us to be ministers of reconciliation, to share the hope and the light into this dark and dying world. So that's my challenge as we start this series off to go and speak light and life into the world that we are in. And I'm not calling you to change your jobs. I'm not calling you to do anything different other than looking at the gifts and the things that you find pleasure in and to do them well. To do them for the glory of God and for the mission of his kingdom. That's how we're gonna push back the darkness here in Indianapolis. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you that in our mess, in our darkness, far before the foundation of the universe, Lord, you saw us. And you said, I, I want that man, I want that woman in my life to bring my name glory and to save them from eternity separated with me. Lord, thank you that there's so much profound implications on you being the creator of life and living in community, and redeeming us, Lord. May that bring us hope and joy as we go out into this world. Lord, may it be the foundation in which we share the gospel that we believe, that we love. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize that the things in our lives, even more than we even see, are Imago Dei issues how we interact with this world and how we interact with topics that may even ruffle some of our own feathers, our Imago Day issues. And I pray as we go through this series, I pray as we enter into 2017, Lord, we would take this serious. We would press in. We would see what scripture has to say and believe it, live it out. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he saved us and gives us the ability to see 
the darkness around us to be able to share this hope that we have. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as we close this morning, we're gonna close with communion. That's the, one of the greatest ways that we can enter into community with each other, celebrating what Christ has done for us. So there's one, two stations in the back, one's gluten-free, one's not. And so I would ask that you guys just take some time to think about the Imago Day, think about who you are in light of what the Imago Day means, and then celebrate. Celebrate that we are created in the image of God and that Christ has redeemed us by his death on the cross and resurrecting from the grave. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at